You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Lessons Learned from the 2022 Chargeback Field Report and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and Digital Commerce 360. Hello, I'm Lauren Friedman, Senior Consumer Insights Analyst at Digital Commerce 360, and I'm going to be your moderator for today's e-commerce chat. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Today, we're going to be joined by two experts from Chargebacks 911, David Pirtle, the VP of Enterprise Engagement, uh, with the t-shirt and the logo, you'll see it there, and Jared Wright, the VP of Marketing. Chargebacks are certainly evolving, but is the situation getting better? What's changed for merchants over the last few months? And what new threats are they seeing just over the horizon? Today, we will look at the recent findings from their upcoming Chargeback Field Report 2022. You see the beautiful cover here. Um, Just a few housekeeping notes before we get going. We'll take questions at the end of the presentation, but you can ask them at any time using the chat box on the right-hand side of your screen. We'll try to get to all of the questions, but if we don't, you'll certainly hear from someone on their team. You can also use that box to let us know of any technical difficulties you're having, and someone will help you out with that as well. All of our attendees today will be eligible for today's raffle for one of three Amazon gift cards and a copy of Digital Commerce 360 2022 How to Improve Conversion Report at $399 value. We'll also be announcing the winners of today's raffle at the end of the e-commerce chat, so don't leave early. Um, With that, let's get started. Um, Jared, I'm going to turn things over to you to kick things off. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I'm going to leave this screen up just for a minute, um, and I just want to make the announcement. If anybody has any questions um, or wants to drill down into any of this information, uh, certainly if anybody wants to speak to us about our solutions, please feel free to reach out to either myself or David. Um, So I'll put our emails up, and I'll try to do it at the end, but if I don't, um, here's your opportunity to grab um, our emails. Um, so um, with that, I'm, my name is uh, Jared Wright, and I, I'm going to get started here. Um, the, the first thing that I want to talk about is um, I, I just want to talk a little bit about what this report is and what it isn't. Um, at Chargeback 911, we have, you know, we work with thousands of clients, and so we have a lot of chargeback data. And, um, you know, we use that chargeback data to help our customers and to diagnose trends Um, And we do occasionally put together reports or publish some of that data publicly. Um, However, I I think it's important to understand chargebacks as a whole um, that uh, companies uh, look outside of their data set. Um, And the way that I describe that is a uh, Indian fable about blind men and an elephant. Uh, Basically, it imagines that blind men feeling different parts of an elephant uh, would describe the elephant differently. And I think there's a similar relationship to data um, to, 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 the, to this concept. Uh, many issuers, acquirers, card schemes, for example, um, fraud prevention tools, chargeback management companies, they all have unique perspectives and somewhat unique data sets through which to evaluate and understand the chargeback problem. Um, so when we describe chargebacks and rely exclusively on our individual experience, it can create conflicting and seemingly unreliable data. Um, so the example that I think is easiest to uh, illustrate this is, uh, you know, a fraud prevention company may tout that credit card fraud is on the rise. Well, you know, our understanding is that friendly fraud is a greater threat for many merchants. 
the um, the card schemes, for example, have a lot of access to aggregate data, but they have very little access to the underlying variables that make that data valuable. So I, I guess this is a really long way to you know, get around to the idea that this is a, a merchant survey um, because merchants have a wealth of information about their individual experience, um, but little or no ability to compare that experience to other merchants. So that's sort of what we're trying to facilitate today. Um, but I wanted to, to start with the caveat that this uh, report should be considered an important part of the picture and not necessarily the entire story. So um, in this webinar, we're going to talk about the data in the report, and then we're going to provide hopefully some of that um, context and a larger picture so that uh, it tells a more complete story than it would on its own. So um, I'm excited to get started. Thank you guys again for joining us today. Um, before we get too deep into the actual guts of the report, I think um, we're just going to take a little bit of time and talk about the demographics of the people that participated in the survey. I think if you look at the um, charts uh, uh, above, I think it illustrates um, you know, that we, we tried to include the uh, opinions and experiences of a wide uh, uh, swath of merchants. Um, we we uh, were lucky enough to have participation from just under 300 merchants um, of varying sizes and with different risk profiles. Um, uh, more than a third of the participants had no risk profile whatsoever. Um, that was important because I did not want to compile a study that was based exclusively on the experience of any type of merchant, high risk or uh, subscription or um, any, any of those other uh, categories. Um, <clears throat> additionally, the merchants that participated had uh, different strategies for dealing with their chargebacks. Um, <clears throat> a little less than half uh, had no representment service. They did it in-house. Another quarter uh, did not represent chargebacks at all. And then another third or however the math works, you can see the uh, um, chart up on the screen had some some degree of third-party support. Um, fewer than 10% of the participants are current Chargebacks 911 customers, which is another area that we, we where we really tried to make sure that we had um, a uh, unbiased sample set. Okay, the, another question that we asked that really was an indicator of um, a lot of different variables or a lot of different things was uh, the number of Chargebacks that a merchant was dealing with. That dictated a lot of these answers. So just out of curiosity, just to see how well um, the, the data in the study uh, might or might not align with the audience today, um, we've got a poll loaded if uh, we want to trigger that. Um, just kind of let us know how many chargebacks you're receiving in an average month, and then um, we'll, we'll talk about uh, um, the study and, and, and maybe try to focus in on the, um, the concerns of merchants that, um, that are similar to your chargeback profile. Okay, we'll just go ahead and um, display the answer right now. Okay, that's very interesting. More than two, so we're a little bit skewed on the larger side, um, and that makes sense. Um, you know, mer merchants that are dealing with larger chargebacks are going to be more likely to sit through a webinar like this. So, um, welcome, guys. This is very interesting. So, if we uh, if we remove that now, um, this was the uh, sample set. So it's actually very similar. So um, the data in this report should more or less uh, overlap with the, um, the audience that we're talking to today. Okay, one of the crowd-pleasing stats is on alternative payments. I'm not gonna bring David in on this because I know it's not a big part of the conversation that he has with clients, but I think it's interesting anyway, um, at least for me to, to look at the growth of alternative payments. Um, increasingly, merchants are turning to things other than the standard key in your credit card type payments. Um, the cryptocurrency was the, the highest increase year over year. Um, but that went from 4% to 6%. So I don't know that we're at a place where we can get super excited about 
um, the future of cryptocurrency. Um, the buy now, pay later um, really is the biggest story as far as I'm concerned, um, which is up 30%. And uh, e-wallets is now well over the majority of merchants accepting some type of PayPal or uh, ePay, <clears throat> or uh, excuse me, Apple Pay. Um, okay, now this is another thing. Um, 2018, I think Visa came out with a overhaul of their chargeback guidelines and process. And um, in that overhaul, they changed the term internally that they used for um, chargebacks. They started calling them disputes and then dispute responses. And they kind of changed a lot of the language. Um, and so we've been struggling um, trying to figure out the best way to communicate the ideas that we have to communicate. Um, and so it's always interesting to me whether or not merchants are um, calling chargebacks chargebacks or if they've adopted the language of Visa. Um, so, so just I guess at the at the top here we've got another uh, study. So we'll tell you what the participants in our survey said, but I'm curious again about what um, the audience is uh, what what they use. Which 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 term when you talk about a payment? A dis well, I don't want to use dispute. A contested payment um, internally. Do you, do you do you use chargebacks and disputes interchangeably, or do you primarily use one or the other? And we will um, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and just see. See how the uh, the responses came in. Chargebacks disputes and both evenly. So 56, 11, 33. I think I'm going to cheat a little bit and look ahead. I've got my uh, answers written out here. Yeah, it's pretty close, I think. So let's let's go ahead and get rid of that, and then we will reveal our answers. I don't think we have the actual counts here, but um, but but pretty close. Um, so it looks like 30% use both evenly. Disputes was in the minority. Um, the thing that was interesting to me, and this is something that, that David and I are, are going to talk about, um, you know, we're going to debate a little bit. I, I don't know if our data last year was an anomaly, um, but we've definitely seen a trend towards chargebacks being the popular term this year. Um, so, so David, I know we've talked, but why don't, can you give us just a little bit of context um, about how the merchants that you speak to, are, are, they, are they transitioning to disputes or, or how do they sort of differentiate between a chargeback and a dispute? What is that language like on the street? <laughs> well, on the street, it is still chargeback. So, I mean, when when they're speak, when they're speaking to me, they they're usually having a problem with with disputes turning into chargebacks. Um, so, primarily, I hear chargebacks mostly. And you know, just because the card schemes try to change things up on us, uh, we try to do it as best as we can, and then we flip back to what we're used to. So, I think it'll always be chargebacks, to be honest. Yeah, I think so too. And I've, so we actually had to sit down and come up with a philosophy in marketing because we write a lot of content. One of the things we had to purge from our language was disputing chargebacks because it just was a really complicated term um, when you had the the lack of clarity around what a dispute specifically was. Um, so the way that we've sort of dealt with it is we've said, okay, a chargeback is the accounting mechanism. Um, chargebacks are the forced transaction reversals initiated by the cardholder's bank. Um, whereas a dispute is the action that's taken by the cardholder. So dispute is kind of like a verb. You're disputing a charge. The cardholder disputes the charge. You're, you know, you can say you're dealing with the the merchant's or the cardholder's dispute. Um, but then the the mechanism of resolution is the chargeback. And I think I think David, you had some in insight there because because really, if you think about it that way, and you have sort of chargeback, and then you have there's other ways that these disputes are resolved, right? We're going to talk about some of those um, today. So. Um, um, Maybe maybe you can sort of preview a little bit of that thinking. Like, how, how many different ways can a merchant um, resolve a credit card dispute? 
um, a lot. <laughs> so that's why I think of dispute as pre-chargeback activity. And yeah. of course, chargeback is post-dispute that resolved in a forced refund. So, you know, just because a client or, or a consumer questions a charge or maybe disputes that with their bank doesn't necessarily mean it's going to resolve in a uh, chargeback. So now there's prevention methods that are pre-chargeback post-transaction that we can work with to resolve those disputes from turning into chargebacks. So I kind of think of it as pre and post. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Um, so, you know, now, now this may change. There may be a, uh, you know, MasterCard may change their language to dispute and then we're, we're going to have to we're going to have to figure this out again. But I, I think for right now, um, I'm, I'm pretty solid on how we're using the language and hopefully that's helpful in case anybody else has been uh, struggling with that a little bit. Um, we asked questions what the biggest uh, challenge related to chargeback management was. Um, this was a little surprising to me, but David, you said it, it was it was pretty typical of what you um, you hear when you talk to to merchants. Can you can you add a little context to that? Yeah, I think the first thing I hear on every call is if someone is disputing their chargebacks or responding back to them or representing them, whatever terminology fits your <laughs> fits your um, you know vocabulary uh, would be I am not winning cases. I feel like I have really really good supporting evidence. I am submitting this back through my acquiring solution, but I just can't recover the revenue when I know this is you know not a valid chargeback and. That's probably the biggest uh, question I get is how can I improve this? And really it just, it's more technical and complex in the back end than you would think it would be. So just because you have really, really, really good information on the transaction and you know it is valid, it doesn't mean that you're submitting a response or representment that is compliant with the rules and regulations of that particular card scheme or what the issuer needs to see. So there's kind of like finite, defined uh, evidence that you need to su submit based on variables. So it can get a little bit confusing, but just because you, had, you have great information doesn't mean you actually are submitting it correctly, if you want to think of it that way. So this is a probably the biggest concern. So it's it's right in there with, you know, the stats I expected to see. Yeah, and I, I think the, the other thing to point out is that identifying friendly fraud is number two. I know that there was a time, um, you know, we've been trying to communicate the sort of problem with friendly fraud for, um, you know, really since, you know, I've been here eight years, I think you and I've been here about the same amount of time. And, um, you know, I know that there was a time where friendly fraud was kind of, people weren't really sure what it was, um, that the number two problem is identifying friendly fraud, I think, um, you know, really talks to the increasing sophistication of merchants and, and really a, a broader understanding of what the problem that they're dealing with is. Um, is, is, does, it, does that seem, when you, when you talk to merchants, is friendly fraud sort of more forward on their mind than maybe it was when, when you started? Definitely, yeah. especially in this last year. Uh, friendly fraud is the new uh, buzz or first party fraud is a new buzzword that it, it seems to be what they're tackling this year versus just true criminal fraud. Uh, it's harder to identify just because mostly merchants are dealing with inaccurate reason codes so you know for example if a fraud reason code comes through and it's not actually fraud that's just what the consumer is claiming then you know it's really hard to figure out now i have a fraud reason code is this real fraud or is this just friendly fraud so it's very very difficult for merchants to kind of dig in without spending a lot of time and a lot of money and effort into the situation uh, to identify friendly fraud versus criminal fraud that's great. 
Okay. All right. So the next question we ask uh, merchants is to estimate the percent of their overall transactions um, that uh, turn into chargebacks. And, um, you know, if, if we just look at the average, it was just around half of a percent. Uh, I think the term of art is 50 basis points. Is that right, David? Um, and, and one of the interesting things is that larger merchants, um, you know, uh, or merchants that were dealing with more chargebacks definitely had a higher chargeback rate or reported a higher chargeback rate um, than, than merchants that were only dealing with a few chargebacks. And this is actually something that, that is an ongoing theme throughout the report is whether or not the, the merchants that are dealing with more chargebacks, maybe maybe whether they're just more aware of the chargeback issue, so they're keeping better track, or if um, the um, you know there's some liability that sort of um, accompanies merchants that are larger that are that are you know dealing with a higher number of chargebacks. Um, but but David, you said that this this is pretty pretty consistent with what you see um, when you talk to merchants. I know that there's a lot of merchants that have you know closer to the 10 basis points or, you know, just a, a, a very, very small chargeback problem. But um, but I guess if you averaged it all out, would you, would you think around a, a half a point would be about right? Yeah, I think this is about right. I mean, obviously every merchant is different. Uh, they might have a different uh, service or product model recurring versus not recurring. So lots of variables go into this stat, but I think it's right on par. I mean, it's increasingly harder to stay within that threshold of the card schemes and processors, uh, which is usually less than 1% as a general. Right. Yep. And then you get those merchants that, you know, might be multi-acquired. Uh, they might have 10 different acquirers. They might uh, have two, but um, a lot of merchants don't even focus on calculating this because it's so much work. So, you know, if they're working with different 10 different platforms, maybe a thousand different merchant accounts, that's a lot of effort to yeah. go and calculate this percentage. So, um, but this is this is pretty on par with what I see. Great. <clears throat> okay, so the next one, we, we asked merchants two questions. We asked um, whether or not they considered friendly fraud to be a concern within their business, um, how much of a concern, and whether or not they felt like they were being successful at mitigating the threat of friendly fraud. Um, so the chart on the left shows, um, you know, the, the the first question, and it compares the 2000, the most recent numbers with what we've uh, heard from merchants the past two years. Um, I think I think obviously that there was a spike in concern in 2021 as people were sort of still dealing with the consequences of the pandemic, um, or at least those consequences were new, net new to them. Um, but I think I think the um, you know overall trend is still an upward trend. Um, I think that's sort of what we've been talking about um, with these last couple of slides, that merchants are more aware of um, chargebacks. And then the slide on the right contrasts the merchants that consider um, friendly fraud a significant concern and then contrast that data with the merchants that feel like they're successfully mitigating friendly fraud. And, and, I, and I think that there's a really, really clear um, you know, correlation between the size of a business and um, the disparity between the um, size of the friendly fraud problem and um, how, how effective they are at dealing with it. And uh, again, you know, I think this goes back to the idea, like are larger merchants, is there a liability for friendly fraud or um, are, are they just more on, to, they're paying closer attention so they, they are, they're aware of the, the size of the problem and uh, how ineffective many of the solutions that um, merchants first use to, to address the situation are. 
Um, David, do you have an insight? Is there any, anything surprising about this for you? Or um, wh what are your thoughts about the size of a merchant and, and what that correlation might be able to teach us? I would say no surprise at all to see these numbers, especially that spike in 2021 when COVID was at its highest. Everyone was being forced to use more e-commerce merchants. Um, you know, they're they're dealing with supply chain issues. They're dealing with a lot of variables that just typically doesn't happen. You know, people that are not used to doing e-commerce transactions are forced to go online. And then they're now more aware of this process called disputes or chargebacks uh, that they can resolve their uh, concern with their bank rather than the merchant. Um, so I think that spike in 2021 is very on point. And then larger merchants versus smaller merchants are going to invest more effort and may have a larger team and more chargebacks to deal with. So they're already aware of this friendly fraud problem because they're probably using a third-party fraud filter, uh, filter or an internal process on the front end pre-transaction side that gets rid of most of that that criminal intent concern. And they know that they're left with more friendly fraud aspects of the business. So um, I think awareness is a huge part of, uh, you know, why larger merchants are seeing um, more friendly fraud. Yeah, I do too. And I think, I think that's, it's an important, it's, it's why I think talking about this data is, is valuable because there is, there is sort of bias and there is, you know, the, uh, um, you know, some element of uh, merchant perception that we're measuring here um, rather than raw data. Um, but I think that that perception is, is valuable for everyone too. Um, so, um, so I think it's a good exercise to do. Um, another question we asked is over the last three years, have you, have you experienced an increase um, in friendly fraud? Um, this is something that we've been talking about for uh, various reasons. Friendly fraud, um, you know, in our estimates has been increasing year over year. Um, but uh, according to merchants, 65% uh, of those surveys said that, that it had increased over the last three years. Now, this is down again from 2021. I think obviously, um, you know, 2021 was a, was a pretty drastic increase for most merchants in, in the area of chargebacks, but specifically within the, the realm of friendly fraud. Um, but still to be reporting a, an increase in 2022 over theoretically 2021 and 2020, um, was a little bit surprising to me. I expected there to be a pullback, um, but there doesn't seem to be, at least in the merchants that we spoke to, that there seems to be uh, as sort of an increasing, you know, year over year um, trend uh, towards uh, towards friendly fraud being a bigger and bigger problem. Um, David, do, do the merchants that you, that you talk to, is, is that the sense that you get that the, the it's just this is just something that's going to be with us and is, is going to sort of get a little bit worse every year? Yeah, I think we we kind of been preaching this every year for what a decade now. <laughs> so uh, we just know it's an increasing problem because we've gotten really good with that criminal intent fraud. Uh, so now we're deal dealing with humans making transactions and then gaming the system. And then, you know, with COVID in 2021, that just expedited that, um, you know, massively. We're seeing a result in increase. But I think, you know, fewer merchants are uh, seeing it because things are getting back to, to to normal. So you might have those store present transactions that were forced to go to e-com, but now we're you know back in the stores, we're back in the restaurants, things like that. So this is pretty typical to what I expected, just to see a slight decrease, you know, in, in the merchants that are saying they have uh, an increase in friendly fraud, just because things are kind of getting back to normal, but uh, still a huge issue. 
Um, now, of the ones that said that they saw an increase of those 65%, we, we asked them um, to estimate the amount that uh, friendly fraud had increased over the last three years. The average result was 28%. Um, and again, the, the merchants that were, um, you know, had more than $100 million in um, card not present revenue were uh, reporting significantly higher, almost twice as high. I can't do the math. It's 85% high, as high as um, the smaller merchants that were doing under a, a million. Um, again, the, the same question, are larger merchants, do they have a bigger problem with chargebacks um, or are they just, you know, investing in their reporting and, um, you know, more aware of, of the, uh, the problem than smaller merchants? Uh, but, but David, is this, is this, is this consistent with um, what you see? Like, um, how, how big a problem? I mean, is this going to be like this forever? I mean, if you, if you extrapolate 20%, let's say, Forever, I'm, you know, at a certain point, the, there's got to be, there's got to be a ceiling. Um, so, um, what, what, what is the, um, the feeling of the merchants that you're talking to? Is there, a, is there a desperation that they're, they're starting to struggle with? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. You know, they're becoming more aware that it is a problem because we have some more, uh, you know, data available to us in the industry, but also. Uh, they're understanding that it's harder than true fraud to actually mitigate because it is consumers doing this. It's human behavior. It's very hard to spot on the front end of things. So, you know, that pre-transaction uh, uh, ecosphere that you're in, like how do you know that someone's going to charge back? How do you know that they're going to be uh, dissatisfied with your product? How do you know? So these are all friendly fraud aspects that you're, you're forced to face. Um, but I don't think it's... I mean, it's always going to be around. Obviously, like there, there will if there's a transaction, there's going to be a dispute process. However, the silver lining is the card schemes are doing stuff, or the card brands are doing new products, new tools, new uh, things that we can do in that post-transaction, but still pre-chargeback um, area to prevent these these uh, disputes turning into these chargebacks. So, um, I think it's always going to be around, especially since. COVID has hit, it's a learned behavior. I mean, once you understand that you can dispute a charge within three seconds, it's very hard for the merchant to compete with that. Um, so still gonna be around for a while. So so just something, this is sort of an aside, and I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but um, as, as you were talking, I was just really thinking, I know that when when, <clears throat> when we first started, um, you know, talking to merchants about this this type of stuff, uh, chargebacks were really taboo. Um, but I have to think if, if chargebacks or friendly fraud is growing year over year, this has to be something that's a little bit more on the mind of the average merchant and isn't necessarily sort of the dirty word that it was maybe when we got started. Have, have you noticed a shift in sort of thinking where it's sort of like, you know, everybody has chargebacks, um, you know, whereas it used to be only the bad companies had chargebacks? <laughs> yeah, everyone has chargebacks. Let's just put it out there. It's nothing yeah. unique. Um, but now I just think, you know, because we're forced to talk about it. Um, collaboration has definitely gotten better. Uh, merchant to merchant, peer to peer collaboration. We have more events that are influencing this and making the stage available for merchants to do this. So um, I, I definitely think that's one of the most powerful things that you can do is collaborate, see where you're at with your data, you know, find out what other merchants are doing in your in your vertical, and then talk about what works and what doesn't, uh, because every merchant is going to be different, but yeah, I definitely think the ideal of a chargeback has shifted from, ooh, dirty laundry to, okay, this is just going to happen. Everyone has it. Now let's do something about it. Right. Okay. 
All right, so now these next three sites, I'm actually going to skip through because we're getting towards the bottom of the hour, and there's, there's a couple of points I want to make sure we get to. We also asked merchants, um, you know, what percent of their chargebacks um, are considered friendly fraud. Just real quick, David, this you and I agree this is definitely an underestimation, which is we'll talk about it a little bit more, but um, this this number is, does not reflect what, what we think the average amount of friendly fraud that these merchants are dealing with is. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, and it's just because, I mean, listen, you have to know how much friendly fraud you have before you can estimate it. And it's extremely hard for merchants to do this. I mean, I think two thirds in the Lexus Nexus study that was done a few years ago, two thirds of merchant, this was the hardest thing for them to do is identify friendly fraud versus criminal intent. Which chargeback should I respond back to? Which chargeback should I not respond back to? So you're finding yourself you know, looking at reason codes that are coming through and if they're fraud or unauthorized, you know, you're not considering that friendly fraud because the bank has deemed that fraud. Um, when in reality, that's usually not the case. So uh, it's a mixed bag. And we know that the percentage is higher because we're able to figure out, you know, which cases to dispute, which ones are friendly fraud versus real fraud through yeah. our proprietary technology and databases. And then we're overturning a lot more than this stat. So, you know, for an example, if you have 100 chargebacks coming in, we dispute 98 of those chargebacks and we're recovering, say, 50 plus percent, then that means we know for that merchant, friendly fraud is 50 plus percent just yeah. because we reverse them. So, um, so yeah, it's definitely it's definitely more than this, but, you know, it's on par with what I think merchants would would think that they got going. Merchants on. estimate, yeah, I think so too. I think I think this is probably based on reason codes. This is what percent of my chargebacks have non-fraud reason codes? Um, and so then, so th these are two more variables. I'm just going to skip through them because I'm going to mention them in a later slide. 54% uh, was the average uh, percent of friendly fraud that was represented by merchants, and then 45% uh, was the average win rate that was reported. Um, so once you have all of this data, so once you know the average uh, percent of friendly fraud, the average response rate, the average win rate, and then um, most of the merchants had some sense of how many chargebacks um, were reversed back in the second chargeback, second cycle, pre-arbitration, whatever language you, you want to use. Um, and so you, you're able to do uh, the calculations on a net recovery rate. Um, and so at least based on the reported information by merchants, um, you know, we, we talk about friendly fraud being 60 to 80 percent of the problem for the vast majority of merchants that we talk talk to, um, and and we've and we've got a net recovery rate of the merchants that we surveyed of 8.9 percent. So that means only less than nine percent of the revenue that is being lost on a monthly annual basis to chargebacks is being successfully recovered. So so this is this is an area where it, you know it's really important um, that merchants understand that that a lot of them are leaving a lot of money on the table um and um david i think i think you you know you you have to talk to merchants all the time about the difference between net recovery or net win rate and win rate um so can you kind of uh, provide that clarification a little bit for for the audience today yeah this is a really hard stat to swallow for most merchants but i see on average you know 9% this is just based on the survey that we did here but yeah. i see about an average maybe up to 20% net win rate. Uh, some merchants are gonna dispute more chargebacks because they're better at identifying friendly fraud. Some of them, them are gonna win back more revenue just because they're you know, more familiar with the uh, technicalities of the process. Um, and then some are gonna have a less second cycle chargeback because that first cycle was more successful. But the way I kind of just walk through 
this with a merchant is, yeah, dispute rate is important. So if you get 100 chargebacks in, you're only disputing 50 of those, then even if you win 100% of those chargebacks and no second cycle chargebacks, your net win rate's 50%. So that's kind of what we're looking at here is when you start chipping away at your situation of how many chargebacks you're disputing, what's your win rate out of those, how many turn into a second cycle, and then at the end of the day, you know, you're you're left with that net net recovery. Um, it's it's hard to explain, but it is it's something that every merchant should look at. Yeah, well, because I think the reporting is probably you know if I was doing the reporting and I wanted my boss to tell me I was doing a good job, I'd I'd report the 45% win rate and then just call it a day, right? I'm I'm getting yeah. half our money back, but but really when you look at that, the the story behind that is 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 much different. Um, and then, so one of the things is we, we didn't, it's important that, that we don't talk about um, specifically any um, results that we get for our clients, but I did look at the merchants that said that they were outsourcing their solutions, which include a, you know, at least some of our clients. Um, and, and then when you looked at the net recovery rate um, of those estimates, then you came up with a number that was, I don't know, 50% higher. I can't do the math, but it was, it was, it was notably higher than, um, um, the uh, the merchants that were, were doing it all in-house. Um, and, and David, I think it's safe to say that our merchants get notably higher than this net recovery rate. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, um, I would be scared of a 12% recovery rate. But as you said, this is not just our clients, it's, it's overall. And yeah. there's very different chargeback management solutions out there. There's automated ones, there's, you know, consultative ones, there's just a vast array of what, you know, whatever your goal is, um, SaaS solutions, et cetera. So yeah. uh, it would be interesting to dive into that a little bit more to see what they are using uh, to get that 12% result. But yeah, but yeah of course, um, ours is expected to be higher than 12%. <laughs> Great. Good. Um, okay, so this is going to, I'm just going to go real quick through this. But this this chart, I think, um, is the easiest way that I've been able to explain the idea that um, David's been talking about, and that is um, the the reality of hidden friendly fraud. I think I think when we talk to merchants, they they more or less, um, especially if you average it out, they they put I've got a fraud problem, that I've got a friendly fraud problem, and it's about half of my situation. Um, they sort of allocate. They used to allocate 80% to criminal fraud and 20% to friendly fraud. Now now more commonly, it's more of a 50-50. And I think the reason for that is if you go just by reason codes. I think the reporting is something like 50% of reason codes are fraud based and then you know the other uh, reason codes are um, other types of disputes or operational issues or you know whatever um, technical issues with with the transaction um, and so if you just sort of think about it in the very simple mathematical way if you got, you got half that are friendly fraud and half that are criminal fraud it sort of makes sense and so the year over year increase in chargebacks that many merchants have identified um, usually they think about it and they say, well, it's about half criminal fraud, it's about half friendly fraud, um, and, and that makes sense. Um, but the reality is that you have some degree of hidden friendly fraud, um, that is to say, friendly fraud that is coded as criminal fraud. Um, and that's because there's really only so many reason codes that a bank has. Actually, David, why don't, why don't you kind of, can you give us an example of, you know, maybe tell a story about why um, a, a, a instance of criminal fraud would be miscoded? Yeah, so fraud is definitely the vanilla code when it comes to uh, chargeback reason codes, and it's just because there's a lack of information on the transaction at the issuing bank level 
at the time of the dispute. So uh, when a consumer calls into a bank, the consumer banks listens to their story, and then based on that and the lack of uh, transactional information that the merchant has, they make a decision on how to code that claim. So most most consumers are just aware they claim fraud, uh, or I didn't authorize this, and then it's pushed through as the vanilla code of uh, fraud. And then the merchant is left with looking at that fraud reason code and then understanding or trying to understand, was this leg legitimate or is this actual fraud? Um, so I, I find that most merchants don't dispute criminal fraud uh, reason codes for that simple fact. So that's a good example of how that would be miscoded as fraud. Yeah. Okay, the next one, and we'll just talk about this real quick. Um, the I, I think this is consistent with what we asked merchants, how many people were on their uh, representment team within your company, and then we looked at how many chargebacks they had. And it looked like around every 92 chargebacks or every 92 disputed cases anyway, um, they were allocating at least one full-time um, employee. So that, that's a really quick way for um, you, know, you to visualize how many employees it's going to need depending on the, the number of chargebacks that you're dealing with every month. Um, David, is this is this consistent with what you, you see, I think, generally? I mean, I, I know it's it varies from merchant to merchant, but but a, a individual employee can only do so much, am I right? Yeah, it's still a very manual process to, you know, look up, research, decide whether you're going to dispute, get the evidence, figure out what the, how you're going to format things depending on the factors, and then, you know, put it in a case, uh, size it correctly, and then resubmit it. I mean, all this is... Is time-consuming on merchants. Um, so, you know, 92 chargebacks is, is quite a lot for one rep to get to, especially if they're not um, very experienced with the chargeback uh, process and workflows and rules and regulations. It's going to take them more time to do research on that. Um, but, you know, this is kind of skewed as a larger merchant uh, comes to me because usually, you know, if you're getting 10,000 chargebacks per month, your technology team has probably kind of put something together to collect information to kind of streamline this a little bit for yeah. their for their employees. So, um, you know, it really just depends on how much that, that merchants invested in technology versus just human involvement. Right. Okay, so um, we've got chargeback reduction solutions. We're gonna break these down um, in each individual slide, but I sort of wanted to start and, and, and kind of mention all of them here. Um, we asked merchants about the three different categories of chargeback prevention solutions just to get a sense of, um, uh, you know, what, what they were using. And then we asked them, you know, how effective they were within their business. So we'll go one by one and I'll have David explain what um, these solutions are. But David, just sort of, can you talk about how these work versus maybe like a fraud filter or sort of a pre-transaction um, solution just to give people the, the, a way to frame this before we get into the weeds? Yeah, so this is basically that that avenue of resolution that is pre-chargeback but post-transaction. So the transaction is settled and dispute comes in uh, or consumer questions that charge. These are solutions that you can um, enroll with and prevent that from going into the chargeback cycle. Great. And so first we have sort of the legacy chargeback alerts. Um, why don't you talk about those a little bit real quick? Yep, so just to break it down very easily, these are issuers uh, or issuing relationships, so the consumer's banks that have opted into a program to give a refund notification or request through the card, uh, through the networks that you see here listed, so Chargeback Simon 1, Ethica, and uh, Verify is CDRN. Um, and essentially, 
basically what we do and what Ethica and Verify does is they go out to issuers to say, hey, my merchants would want to give a refund rather than get a charge back. Would you be a part of this program? So consumer calls in, disputes the charge. They have the availability to use the traditional alert networks to give us a notification. We give a refund. It prevents the charge back. Great. And the, the reduction of 27%, is that consistent with what, what we might expect? Yep. Depending on your geo, um, you should expect that 20, 27%. Mm -hmm. Great. And the next one is the network inquiries, order insight, consumer clarity. This is a newer product, am I right? Newer product. Um, it is launched in the last few years. Uh, and instead of using a refund to prevent the chargeback, we now can give that information that's lacking at the issuing bank level during the dispute in real time. So if you're a part of this program, uh, every Visa and every MasterCard issuer in the world has availability to these programs now. So it's not that selective relationship like the traditional alerts that we just talked about. Um, basically, just a really, really simplified how this works is I, as a consumer, calls into you, Jared, as the bank. I dispute the charge. I have a question about it. Anything, really, uh, that could result in that chargeback uh, now the issuer has availability to request information from the merchant. Uh, so now they can see, okay, they verified the address, collected CVV. The shipping address matches what I have on file, the email address. It was from this IP address, which matches the zip code. It is delivered on time at this address. So, I mean, now that issuer has better availability to the information. And, you know, naturally they're going to make a better decision on should I file this as a chargeback or not. Um, so it works quite well, as you can see, 27, uh, 24%, uh, just by providing that additional information. Uh, it's a huge, huge problem for issuers right now, uh, and this kind of resolves that. Uh, <laughs> so rapid dispute resolution, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? This is the, this is the, new, um, the new hotness, I guess, as they, the kids say. It's the new hotness. Uh, so rapid dispute resolution is a feature of Order Insights, which is a Visa slash Verify program. Um, and instead of doing a blanket refund like traditional alerts, it allows the option for merchants to set up rules. Uh, so again, this is available to any issuer under the Visa platform. And when I call in dispute a charge or question a charge, usually they're gonna request that more information uh, through order insights. But if that doesn't suffice and they feel like, okay, I'm gonna request a refund instead of filing the charge back so the merchant is not pinged or dinged as, as penalty, uh, but I still feel like the consumer should get a refund. I'm going to request that rather than filing the chargeback. So what happens there is we as facilitators or another company as a facilitator will set up rules. They'll work with the merchants to understand, okay, do you want to give a refund under $100? Or do you want to give a refund for a fraud code? Um, and then that refund request hits the acquirer where those rules live. And then based on those rules, they either approve or deny the, the refund request. And then, of course, if it is approved, it's going to prevent that going into the dispute cycle because the consumer has their refund that they wanted. Okay, great. And then, um, so, so just just so for the audience, um, uh, more or less, these these preventions can stack, right? I know it depends on what your risk profile is and the type of chargebacks you're dealing with, but um, you know, RDR and chargeback alerts. There's often cases where you would implement, you know, basically everything, everything all of the above in order to really get that, that chargeback ratio down as low as possible. Is, is, is that right that, that um, this isn't an either or, this is a yes and situation for a lot of merchants? 
Yeah, it's kind of like a la carte, depending on your situation, which is my job to help you figure out which which services even make sense for you. Uh, but really, when I'm talking to merchants and they're looking at all these programs out there and they're figuring out, oh my gosh, what do I use, what do I not use, really just comes down your, to your situation. And a good rule of thumb on these prevention uh, platforms or services, tools, is am I breaching thresholds or am I not? So I could be getting 100,000 chargebacks per month, but if I'm at 25 basis points, I'm never gonna give a refund to prevent that chargeback. I'm gonna use order insights, I'm gonna use consumer clarity, I'm gonna use it, uh, you know, just that organic reduction through customer service, I'm gonna use alternative methods because I'm not just gonna give a refund because I can absorb the risk of that chargeback. However, flip side of that, if I'm over that 1% or 90 basis points with some card schemes, then I need to do anything I can to prevent that chargeback from happening because I'm gonna lose my processing. And in that case, I would suggest, okay, let's start tacking on some of these levels of opportunities to give refunds rather than getting that charge back. So that's how I look at it. Breaching thresholds or not breaching thresholds, you may use some, you may not. And then I get some merchants that use all of them. I mean, they don't care. They just want no chargebacks and they just want to tack on anything. Okay. I think that's it. So, yeah, so let's go ahead and um, if there's any questions, if, if we want to go ahead and um, get those asked, I know we're getting pretty much out of time, but I'll also, while um, Lauren is uh, looking that up, I'm going to put um, our contact information up just one more time so that uh, if any of those things that David was talking about um, interest you, you can reach out to him, or if uh, you have a cool cat video you want to show me, you can reach out to me. All right. Well, Jared and David, thanks for these great insights. A lot to learn here. Um, but let's move on to the Q&A. As you said, we only have time for a few questions. If we don't get to your question, you will certainly hear from someone at Chargebix 911 to answer it. Um, so a couple questions. The first one that I'm going to tackle, uh, let's see, Jared, this one is for you. How reliable do you consider the data, the estimates provided by the merchants? Just kind of a question on the methodology. Yeah, so I think I think that goes back to sort of the the theme of what I was trying to communicate today. I think that I think that certain elements like uh, win rate, um, certain elements like number of chargebacks, um, those are going to be a little bit more reliable. I think um, that some of the stats, like the amount of friendly fraud, is 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 more subjective than um, than I think it should be. But I think it's important to take the measure of uh, merchant opinion, uh, you know, and that's part of what this study is trying to do. Um, and so, so when, when the study is available, um, we're going to send you a copy. But um, what we try to do is we try to look at the raw data, and then we try to provide the larger context um, and try to try to analyze that data a little bit for you and talk about, um, you know, what what our perspective is and, and help you, you know, understand the, um, um, you know, the, the larger picture of chargebacks. And so that's that's basically the idea of the report is to give you insight into the struggle of other merchants and to uh, to to use it as a um, as an opportunity to talk about the common struggle that many merchants face. Okay, great. Um, another question from the audience here. Um, there was a note about the chargebacks per employee. Um, it says, what interval is that based on? Oh, that's a per month. Okay, great. So 90, 92 chargebacks per month. Um, you know, we asked the question, but I think it was was a little bit unclear. Um, but I think I think David David in David's experience, um, you know, 92 chargebacks is about as as much as one individual um, 
sort of employees able to handle, then they, they really need to start growing the team typically. Um, and, and it does skew. So if it's a very large merchant that has, you know, hundreds and hundreds of chargebacks a month, that, that, um, that calculation isn't sort of on forever because of the uh, technology or, you know, various other reasons. But, um, but it, is, it is a good general way to um, calculate the manpower needed to deal with disputes. Great. And David, you certainly have a lot of experience. So, so why is it so hard to win obvious cases of friendly fraud? You got to know the rules. You got to know the regulations inside and out, and you got to keep up with changes. So I think in 2021, there was like 178 changes to the rules when it comes to chargebacks. Um, don't quote me on that, but there's a lot, right? They, they, they change all the time. So uh, in 2023, there's actually going to be a huge push. Um, to have better evidence supported and some regulations that are happening with the issuer. But really it comes down to, to four factors of a chargeback situation and representment on how successful you're gonna be. You need to be looking at who the issuer is that filed that uh, chargeback because their team is looking for certain information. They're trained to look for certain information. Um, you need to consider uh, you know, how much information you're submitting. So how concise how precise you are in submitting this information because these individuals on these teams are faced with a mountain of paperwork to go through every day uh, and don't bury that case evidence that they're looking for in that representment, you know, 20 pages down. So keep it clean, keep it precise, keep it simple. Uh, only provide the information that you need to resolve that uh, dispute, which re would require you knowing the, the rules, but uh, even your acquirer will, you know, require you to provide that in a certain format, a certain size, maybe they want a barcode on it. I mean, there's a lot of things that acquirers have to sift through when just re receiving a representment from a uh, merchant. And then of course the card scheme and reason code. So each card scheme and each reason code is gonna govern what uh, evidence that you need to supply in that representment. Um, so really do some research um, our website is amazing so come to it uh, but your acquirer should be able to help you along with a lot of this information uh, if you're working with a good one and then um, that is the reason why a lot of it's so difficult to get these turned overturned when you know it's a legitimate transaction and it's just because it's based on a very uh, regulated uh, workflow much like taxes i think of it like taxes <laughs> Well, I mean, just to follow up on that, you know, they said, and I think it's a good question and maybe a good wrap question is, how do you stay on top of this? this is to you, David, on top of these rule changes? Just so if one of the things you have to do is be on top of things, how do you do it? And combining that, was there like a bulletin or are there any newsletters from like Visa or MasterCard that are keeping you abreast of these rule changes? I know it's kind of a two-pronged question, but yeah, I think lean on um, events. So events are amazing. I mean, you learn so much information. Um, we personally have a committee. Uh, we have strategic people in our ops team that just keep up with and work with the card schemes on rule changes. Uh, so we know when it happens immediately. We sit on a lot of boards. We, we're very involved with the ecosphere of chargebacks because obviously that's what we do. But if you're just a merchant that's trying to do a better job at understanding when these changes happen, Go to webinars um, they're always good to learn things from and then also attend some events and do some peer collaboration because i mean typic typically it would be the acquiring bank that gets this down from the card schemes or this card brands and then 
there's usually not a very good communication uh, between them and the merchants because this is on the back burner. It's less than 1% of transactions. So, um, but your acquirer should be helping you with these rule changes. Yeah, that's All true. Right. I, I'll yeah. just add there. It's it's one of the reasons that we have a little bit of an unfair advantage <laughs> over in-house teams. So even with when we talked about that that net recovery rate, just if you just said in general um, outsourcing chargebacks, one of the reasons why um, is because the the rules we have access to that information. We have people whose job it is to to have access to that information and to to make sure that we implement you know the most current. Um, um, you know systems and processes to take advantage of whatever the rule change is um so it, that's just very hard um you know most merchants don't have access to the information at all um and um and, and so it's really not something that that can be duplicated precisely in-house um but google and mastercard do they do or um, visa mastercard they do publish guidelines um but again the, the actual individual uh issuing banks is they have their own set of rules that are based loosely on that guideline those guidelines um, so it's, uh, you know, whatever, it's, it's a challenge. Well, we'll leave it at that and it's a challenge, right? Um, so thanks to Jared and David for these insights, um, and a great discussion and there's so much to learn obviously and to keep up with. Um, just the good news is the raffle winners, Scott Milton, Trisha Cruz and Jill Felton. Um, and our webinar team will be in touch with you regarding how to claim your gift card and report. Of course, as always, there'll be a replay of this webinar available. Um, and after we conclude, you'll see a pop-up window on your screen asking you to provide feedback on today's chat. If you can, please take a few minutes to fill this out because of course this feedback helps us plan future webinar topics and understand what kinds of presentations work best. Also, please keep an eye out for our weekly email to find out what other webinars we have planned or visit digitalcommerce360.com to see that upcoming schedule or to view our library of archived webinars. So thanks to both of you again for a very interesting um, chat and enjoy the rest of your day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, everybody.